coming in 2023. The complete saga of the Man of Steel. Comics, radio, animation, movie serials, TV shows, Broadway musicals, motion pictures, and more. 85 years, 250 interviews from Maysell Books in 2023. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Voices from Krypton, the unofficial oral history of Superman. Learn more at vfkoralhistory.com. We talk, we talk, we talk Superman, and we know what's happening. We talk, we talk, we talk Superman, and we cover everything. Hello and welcome to the All-Star Superfan Podcast, the podcast more powerful than the pounding surf, where we soar higher than any plane across the 85-year legacy of The Man of Steel, through comics, TV shows, movies, and more. If this is your first time coming to the show, we've got it all. Interviews with the greats, deep dives into the most beloved corners of Centennial Park, the night spots of Hobbs Bay, and all the sinister secrets of Suicide Slum. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Rob O'Connor, and as always, I'm joined by our very own Inspector Henderson, Mr. Alan Burke. Good day to you, Alan. Hey Rob, how are you today? Uh, I have to say I am really excited for for this episode and uh, I am brimming with excitement as much as I I can't wait to to talk to our guest tonight at the Picard season finals tonight. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. (laughs) I want to talk to our guest about that too. So Amazing. Uh, Tonight we are very lucky and honoured to be joined by a true old school fan who has been an entertainment journalist for decades, working with some of the biggest entertainment publications and highlighting the craft of some of the biggest names in science fiction and fantasy, including many actors and filmmakers associated with the Superman franchise. He's also the prolific author and co-author of a number of best-selling non-fiction books, highlighting some of the most beloved franchises out there, including but not limited to Alan's beloved Star Trek and mine, uh, Star Wars, James Bond, and more. Uh, he's here to talk to us tonight about his new book, Voices from Krypton. Welcome to the show, Mr. Ed Gross. I don't know if I could live up to that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> that was very nice. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's, it's it's great to have you, Ed. It's been a long time coming. We've been chatting for a long time uh, online and stuff, and obviously we've done interviews for the uh, for the book that's 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 coming out. So it's it's great to finally have you on the podcast. Uh, long overdue. Well, it's great to be here. How's that? <laughs> and that's the truth. <laughs> are are you excited Ed, about it, the, the the book coming out? That's it's a big it's a it's a big time of the year for you. Well, you you know, I get excited about any time I do a book and it's coming out, or even if I have a magazine article or a magazine I edited coming out, I have this excitement of like, oh, here's the new baby, I got to check it out and that sort of thing. But I have to be honest, nothing compares to the feeling I have of Voices from Krypton. It really is sort of the book for me, you know, sort of the ultimate oral history book, the thing I dreamed of writing and I finally got the chance to do. I don't know where I go from here. We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) how would you describe the book for anyone who doesn't know anything about it yet well i mean it's you know one of the things i've been doing since uh, 2016 has been these uh, oral history books uh most of them written with mark altman this one's solo by me solo by me that makes sense uh it's uh it is a detailed 80 covering the 85 year history of superman in oral history format so it's like a documentary in written form 
uh, interweaving the voices of 250 people or so. And it really goes from before Superman was created right to the mentions of James Gunn and Superman legacy. So it, it's, it's as up to date as a book can be for something that is continually updating itself. Do you know what I mean? Uh, we often say 120 pages long. So anyway. <laughs> we often say in our intros that we covered the full 85 year legacy of the Man of Steel, but you really covered the full 85 year legacy. I think of I the, did. The Man of Steel. <laughs> I think I did. I'm pretty sure. It's important to mention, you know, that this is a podcast. You have a podcast by the same name, Voices from Krypton, and there has been some very interesting voices on that uh, podcast. I, I'd say quite a few of them probably feature in the book as well. Um, and there's two in particular that you did that really stood out to me. They were kind of archive interviews, one of which was Scott Wells, which, um, if you can believe, is actually Alan's favorite depiction of Lex Luthor. Really? He, keep, he keeps saying that. that. It's not true. Because oh, I thank God. I, every, every, time, every time he says that, I think, oh, someone doesn't get this joke, and they're going to think that that's true. <laughs> I got a little nervous, I have to admit. But, but I have to say one thing. I have to say one thing. Uh, we have ourselves been guilty of deriding Scott Wells a little bit on even on this podcast. But listening to that interview, uh, uh, Ed, I mean, in hindsight, it's almost kind of tragic when you listen back to it because he, I I listened to it, I I listened to it for the first time on the Superboy Legacy podcast when they played it. And he's so earnest in it. And he was really, Mm. really trying. And that gives us another level that now when I go back, I I got the the full box set of the uh, of the four seasons of Superboy for Christmas this year. And when I went back and watched some episodes of season one, I saw it in a very different light, having listened to that interview. Um, So yeah, it really was a superb interview. What what did you make of it? Ed, especially listening back after all these years and everything we know about Superboy now. Well, I mean, I've got to say, I interviewed Scott in 80, when the show premiered basically in 88, right? So I had gone to New York City, I think it was in New York. I interviewed Stacy, I interviewed John Hames Newton, and I think it was Scott Wells at the same time. The truth of the matter is, I'd forgotten I interviewed him. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I have this thing in my basement, I call my archives, Mark Altman refers to as the TARDIS, because I always seem to find things in it that just, just the exact thing that's needed. And I found it was going through a box of Superman related cassettes. Yes, cassettes, Mm. those ancient devices. And I found the one with Scott Wells from 1988. Um, In listening to it, I had the same sort of reaction. It hasn't changed my perception of his performance. It still wasn't a great performance, I'm sorry to say. But here's a guy who almost predicted his own end on the show not in real life tragically but but i mean in the show where he said well for all i know they could turn around and and replace me with another actor playing this character um so he came across more real in that conversation i think than he ever did on screen yes you know and so it was very cool finding it nobody i don't think anybody else has interviewed him really uh so that was very exciting and uh yeah, it's just that, you know, I hate to put it as a footnote in history, but he is. He is always mm. part of the Superman, Superman legacy, having played Lex Luthor. Yeah. He was always, he will always be there. But it just wasn't a memorable performance, though it was nice I, I, to hear his, his view on things, I thought. I feel like the only one who gets mentioned less than Scott Wells is Lyle Talbot from the Kirk Allen serials. Um, but then he's famous for other stuff, so it's not well famous. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> from outer space. Um, but what, what I wanted, like, 
you know, what, what I loved about the interview was, yeah, you get that sense that he is just this guy who just stumbled into this thing. He probably wasn't being paid any great amount of money. You know, it, it wasn't this big, lavish production like Lois and Clark or Smallville later on or anything. It was it was this tiny little thing that was being filmed in Orlando. Um, anyway, I, I won't keep jabbering on. Anyway, basically, just to say it was a really interesting interview. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, Sidney J. Fury as well, because that was very eye-opening. Like, he sounded like he really had faith in... The production, but you could also read between the lines a little bit. Oh, I, I don't uh, think it's reading that, between the lines. And the man says, we're, we're gunslingers and you don't win every duel. <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> that's the guy who's saying, hey, you do your best and who knows what happens. But I had a, I was torn by, I felt the same thing that he really, when he talked about getting Margot and Kidder involved with the film and Gene Hackman involved in the film, that you had to have these guys or else it wouldn't work and that sort of thing. You could sense his his excitement, his determination to make a great movie. Yeah, but I caught him at you know at the tail end of production, so he already knew that the budget had been slashed and stuff. But I guess he was just trying to put on a brave face, and and you can't say the guy wasn't earnest. And I bet you he did everything he could to make that a good movie. And I know you guys are much more passionate about Superman four than I am. Um, I think uh, that's my but Rob point. definitely is Rob is okay. <laughs> um, hey, look, we have four movies to watch Christopher Reeve in, so I will watch Superman three and Superman four whenever I'm in the mood because it's all I've got, right? One, two, three, yeah. and four of Christopher Reeve. Um, and the interesting thing about Fury is I've got another hour of him that I didn't put on the podcast, which Ooh. was done after this interview, and I didn't realize that till again I was converting uh tapes into uh mp3s i didn't use any of that in the book though because it was really a pressure time pressure situation uh but i did find it interesting for a guy who's maligned as he is um or the movie is he definitely had seemed to have the passion for it he just didn't have the resources but but that seems to be something that was true with everybody involved in that film and i I don't want to talk about superman 4 too much because we we talk about it so much but um like we recently interviewed mark pillow and he remembers very fondly and you know he gave it 110 percent when he was there obviously chris did with the writing and you know he was directing some scenes in it everybody seemed to really be invested in it and giving it everything they had. And unfortunately, the way things worked out, it just it didn't go the way it was meant to. The thing is, yeah, you could have as much passion as you want. But if you have a script that's tinkered with, because the earlier draft of the script was stronger. But if you have a script that's tinkered with, number one, and number two, you don't have the money to pull off what's in that script, you're going you're, you're to fail. There's just, mm-hmm. it's one thing to accept some slipshot effects and say, all right, look, they were limited in what they could do. Okay, that's fine. It's atrocious. I mean, what they did, Superboy had better effects than Superman 4 did. And, and that's, uh, even though Superman 4 came first, um, it just, it, they just did not have the money to pull it off. And as a result, the whole thing looks cheap. I think in many ways, Christopher Reeve kind of controlled the narrative around Superman 4 for a long time. And we never heard from Sidney J. Fury at all. Like at least... We didn't hear from him in retrospect the way we heard from Christopher Reeve, who would always talk down about the movie's issues. I often think that maybe from a story perspective, they could have come at it from a different angle. He was very much responsible for the nuclear disarmament story, and maybe that was a little bit misguided from the sure. outset. You know, and nobody ever really mm. levels that at Christopher Reeve. So I thought it was interesting to hear um, from Sidney J. Fury to hear his kind of perspective on it. And what I really found eye-opening was. He had so much faith in the special effects. Oh, yeah. And he really he really thought they were doing this better than the earlier movies. And no, they're not. No, it's, <laughs> like, it's just... God love him. Look, you get moments like 
you know, Chris as Superman addressing the UN, I'm going to do the thing that you and your country have been able to yes. do, right? Rid the world of all yeah. nuclear missiles. You get sucked right in. I mean, you just get sucked right into him being Superman. Like, I'm looking at Superman again, you know? So there are those moments in the movie. Mm. But again, with the <laughs> the night Superman 4 came out, I was having my bachelor party. And only I would end up after we did the whole usual bachelor party thing at a movie theater with his friends watching a midnight <laughs> showing of Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Now, I'm usually pretty quiet in movies. <laughs> when it started and he flew for the first time with that wobbly effect of him flying, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm watching this and I yell out in the theater, these effects suck. Now, <laughs> I, I never do that. <laughs> I did that night because I was drunk and having my off my bachelor party. So uh, it, I don't know if that story's Love worth it. sharing or not, but there you go. Uh, it's just lots of people. Lots of people regret their uh, bachelor parties or stag parties, as we call them here. But uh, that's for you did for a very different exactly. reason. Not not because the effects of Superman Four sucked. Uh, yeah. So so I don't know. It just it was a losing battle in a lot of ways. They just you know Mark Mark uh, Rosenthal told me that you know, and he he told other people that literally on the eve the budget got covered from thirty five million to seventeen million. Well, yeah. mm. how do you regroup from that? You can't. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, everything yeah. was done on the cheap. So, just to get back to your love for Superman as a character yeah. himself, what is it? Why Superman? What What is it about Superman for you? What is it about the Man of Steel that kind of resonates so strongly with you, Ed? You know, I, I discovered the character when I was a kid in the 60s, uh, reruns of the George Reeves show. Then I found out that there were comic books featuring this guy. How cool. So I started reading the comics. I became obsessed with them and all. Initially, it was, of course, he's just a cool character, the flying, uh, you know, the super strength, the vulnerability, all that stuff. Yeah. It was just just blew me away. It seemed so imaginative. But as it went, as I grew up and as it went on, it really was what has, you know, people will say now is the cliche. It's the notion of hope. It's the notion of, you know, Mark Wade said to me years ago, he goes, you know, here's a guy who's got the power to do anything he wants and he chooses to do what's right. Yeah. And to me, that really resonated. And it that's it, though. I mean, that's the whole point where people say he's boring. He's, you know, the big boy scout, all the cliches that they say about him. When done properly, he really can represent that hope out of the darkness. And in this these cynical times, more than any, you know, the more and more I find myself drawn to the character and what he represents. And when they get it right, I'm just thrilled. It's like, well, I think that's why I'm enjoying Superman and Lois so much. Because they really get the, they know the character, they get him right, you know. So it's a lifetime. There's an excerpt in the book where you talk about the character's relevance now, and there's a lot of interesting um, kind of perspectives on that. What what made you ask that specifically? Is it something that's on your mind where the character is concerned? Well, it is because I've gotten tired of the dark Superman. I've gotten tired. It's kind of like what they do with Star Trek these days, for the most part, where you know the Federation is always corrupt. There's always yes. something wrong with Starfleet. There's always something ba wrong with bad morals, as they call it. <laughs> yeah, and and the thing about Superman is, look, I like the Zack Snyder movies. I, I love Henry Cavill as Superman. I think he does a great job as Superman, though the material doesn't always support his performance in a sense. I'm going to get hung by people for that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just tired of them going for the glaring red eyes I, and and the mm, that he's about yeah. to burn you or the angry Superman. The the that's not the character as far as I'm concerned. And it's not trying to hold on to, you know, tenets that existed 50 years ago and I can't let go of it, like Star Trek, the original Star Trek. 
right? It's not about that. It's that if you're going to represent these things in the present, take it in directions you need to take it. I'm not yeah. saying Star Trek should be like it used to be in the 60s at all. I don't care. Oh, the designs don't match. Who cares? I mean, I don't care about that stuff. And and taking Superman a little edgier, like the idea of him being a human, I mean, trying to live among humanity and exploring that is interesting to me. You know, but when he keeps going to the dark territory, and the perfect example is the end of the Snyder Cut, right? We get Superman. He's back. He's basically Superman. Could have used the blue shirt when you know when he opened up his uh, ja ja jacket at the end. I uh, could have used that instead of the black one, but that's okay. But what's the next scene we see of Superman flying around with Batman's head in his hand? Yeah, it's that's not <laughs> Superman, and I'm tired of people forgetting what that character is supposed to represent. I think Brandon Routh is mm. is the Kingdom Come Superman in Crisis of Infinite Earths. Summed it up beautifully when when Lois asked him why the black is in the emblem. And yeah. he says that, well, the black is the darkness. The red is the hope rising from it. To me, that's it in a nutshell. I was just going to say, it's not a perfect comparison, but it always makes me think of the depiction of um, Steve Rogers in, Cap in the Captain America films, okay. um, where it's the character doesn't change. The world around him may change, but he stays true yes. Throughout that entire saga, to what he always has been, and I always feel that Superman, while it's not a direct comparison because they're very, they are very different characters, that it should be the same. Like it's okay for the world to maybe lose a little bit of hope, or to be a little edgier, or to be a little darker if it needs to be. But Superman should always be that beacon that shines through that darkness. And I, I really hope, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on what's what's upcoming now with uh, James Gunn. I really get, I really have. You know, I, I'm really hoping and I have some optimism that we might kind of get to see some of that again. Well, that's certainly the impression he's giving that he, you know, he respects the character. And that's the whole thing, respecting the character uh, and and balancing his Kryptonian human half. That's interesting. Trying to figure out that his place in the world is always an interesting idea, as long yeah. as it's driven by the fact that at his core, he's got the morality instilled in him by Ma and Pa Kent. That thing that makes Clark Kent who he is and therefore Superman who he is. You know, as long as he's got that, I'm very excited for it. I mean, that's the thing. It's, But I'm, you know, I always consider myself like a generational uh, fan in the sense of I follow it from George Reeves to Henry Cavill to Tyler to whoever takes it over. It's like James Bond for me. I go where Bond goes. If, if it's Roger Moore, it's Roger Moore. If it's Daniel Craig, it's Daniel Craig. Yeah. That's how I feel about Superman, as long as, again, they get it right. And uh, and you brought the thing about the, the hope in the darkness. Batman v Superman is a perfect example. They're both dark, angsty characters. I mean, where's the light <laughs> to balance yeah. the darkness? There is none. And that, that's the frustrating thing. And I like the movie, the direct, the uh, ultimate edition. I really like, but that is an issue for me. What, why is it that you think that uh, Hollywood has specifically has struggled with it for so long, where TV shows don't seem to as much? They always seem to deal with the lighter elements, and the more hopeful elements. Uh, well, first of all, you're spending a lot more money on the big screen. And because of that, you have many more cooks, in the, cooks in the kitchen, as they say. Right. You have so many more people giving their opinions. And it's something the Snyderverse suffered from, too. Right. Dealing with Warner Brothers and the constant pressure from Warner Brothers to mold the film away the films away they really shouldn't have been molded um it's it's just i think that's the big thing i think it costs so much money they have to appeal to a wide audience they think 
And for some reason, they don't believe. Look, Christopher Reeve today would not work. Those movies and that approach would not work today. It would be considered corny uh, and out of step with the times. I get that. Mm. But you don't have to do Christopher Reeve. You know what I mean? In the sense yeah. of that's not about his portrayal. His portrayal is fantastic. And I'm not would never put that down because he's Christopher Reeve, right? He's Superman. Um, but yeah. that's but that's the thing. So they're second guessing. I probably lost my own train of thought here, but they're second guessing themselves. They're spending so much money. They feel like they have to try to cater to the audience. And by catering to the audience, they lose the essence, basically, I think, of, of what the character is supposed to be. I always got the feeling when it came to Hollywood Superman that it's executive interference. That's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's it's they, people they just... on top who feel like they know best. I mean, why was the guys behind Batman the Animated Series, Superman the Animated Series, why weren't they allowed to write scripts for the movies? They proved on a half hour basis and over the course of those shows, they could handle character, they could handle depth. And it can handle superheroics. Everything you want in those stories. Why on earth wouldn't Paul Dini, Bruce Tim, everybody be given that chance to bring it to the big screen? I, I never understood that. But that's executives thinking, well, they're cartoon writers. They can't write a movie. Do you think it could have anything to do with the performance of something like Mask of the Phantasm? Back in the early 90s that it didn't do very well and then they were kind of or were they never do you think they were never even considered for, for something like I that? I don't think I mean they did do I forget who which writers were involved with I think Paul Dini was one of them uh, to do a Batman Beyond they wrote a script for a yeah. live action movie and Warner Brothers didn't want to go forward with it. I just believe I don't think it's because of Mask of Phantasm. I just think it's it, it used to be like years ago it used to be like well he's TV you can't do movies you're movies you're not going to do TV. That sort of thing. I really do think it was sort of this snobbishness looking down and saying, you guys can't handle it. But if they really looked at their workload, what they had done, there's no reason to think they couldn't have. Uh, even with executives saying, we're kind of looking for this, mold the scripts to what they wanted. But still, so, I mean, look at the last episode of Justice uh, League Unlimited, right? Where Bat Superman goes up against Darkseid. And, and he says to Darkseid, I live in a world of cardboard. And he goes into how he has to hold back on everything he does. That is the most brilliant character-driven line I think anybody's ever written for Superman. It nails it right there. Here's this guy who, again, can crush everything. And he doesn't. That's from a cartoon. I mean, this is a guy who, who you know what I mean? And it's, I remember as Tim said, he goes, oh, that's Dwayne McDuffie all the way. Uh, <laughs> that line. <laughs> But that, to me, is such a powerful character line and defines Superman in one sentence. It's very similar to... I, ne I never liked that line. <laughs> really? I think, oh my God, I, yeah. I was blown away by that. Because it implies it implies that he wants to go out and just break things and punch things. I think you would, though. I think, I think if you were walking around and you were constantly holding back that the opportunity to let loose and to, to unleash... Yeah, I, I think. Oh, he I enjoyed think smacking down Darkseid. Alan's a police officer, by the way. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hands up. <laughs> but it, it's very similar, Ed, to how there seems to be a snobbishness, or there was at least a snobbishness at a certain time of allowing comic book writers to, say, write the TV shows. And, sure. you know, like there was no comic book writers writing Lois and Clark or, or shows at that time. Now, to be fair, to uh, to get back to Superboy, yeah, to be fair to did. Superboy, they did bring they did bring in people like James DeMatteis and, and, and people of, of his caliber. But it, it's a very similar, it's a very similar um, comparison, I think. 
Absolutely. I'm I'm still I'm sorry, I'm still an open fact that Rob hates that line. I just I'm just like I, I don't know <laughs> what find, to do with that. You'll find you'll find that Rob like I, goes I, against the grain quite <laughs> I, I I always I always like Grant Morrison or is it Grant Morrison? It, the, 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 someone who's he's so powerful that he's just a pacifist because there's no one that can hurt him, so he'd never want to hurt anyone. I always kinda like that idea. And that picture of him from All Star Superman where he's just sitting on a cloud. Right casually because he doesn't need to have his his hands on his hips because he's just so chilled out I'm with that time. too though I, <laughs> I'm with that too you know? I know you know but I don't think yeah. it's him looking like you thought it was him looking for a fight basically or, or like wanting to crush things I don't I never felt yeah. that I felt it was like but if you shake somebody's hand too hard by accident it shatters so yeah everything you do you have to be careful because every step you take every move you make you can hurt somebody or damage something and that's where I read it as and then yeah. with Dark Side, yeah, yeah, it was fun to cut loose and, and let him let me show you what what I really can do or whatever the line was. I, I just want I, I guess I guess I just would have preferred if it was a guy in a greasy steakhouse who <laughs> Superman just came in and just plonked him on the on the on the uh, the diner counter, the, the pin, pinball machine, the pinball table. <laughs> I, t- I think that that would have been more satisfying. Um, no, I love that scene too. And I love that they did it in Superman and Lois. Yeah, that was cool. Oh, that um, scene was great where the guy shoves Clark and he just stands there. And, and he stands there like he puts him on the bar. <laughs> oh, that was great. It, it, I, I don't know if you saw on our, our Twitter, Ed, I posted a video of that scene, but with the diner music from Superman Oh, I didn't see that. That's it, cool. So you, you can check that out. I, I wanted to ask you, having been around fandom for as long as you have, you've seen it transform and maybe even mutate into something uglier than what it once was. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how has fandom changed in the time you've been around I've it? I've been around a long time. I think I can address that. Uh, <laughs> look, it, I when I was, a, I mean, I can only address it from my own point of view and to some degrees. Fandom to me is being a fan is you love something, right? I'm not saying you're, you know, you're, you're a slave to it or, or it's everything you do in life is devoted to this thing, but you love it. But you're, I can't understand how it's changed to the point, you know, the, the cliche of the toxicity of fandom is so real that you can't post anything without somebody, a lot of people attacking it. I mean, poor James Gunn, these Snyder guys are, you know, it sounds like I'm bashing the Snyderverse because I'm not, I like the Snyderverse, so I'm really not trying to do that, but they hire James Gunn. Okay. They're trying to make a concrete decision to say, we're going to go and do this now this new direction with dc films but the the vitriol that comes out of the other side of it almost on a daily basis accusing of being a pedophile and it's just (laughs) you know everybody can hide behind the anonymity of the internet so they can say whatever they want and not worry about it and that's a big change there wasn't that the sort of the the hatred (laughs) really among people who don't agree with you you know, I mean, I remember yeah. used to go to the early Star Trek conventions in Manhattan. One of the greatest things was watching the episodes on 16 millimeter being projected in a room full of people and everyone Amazing. chanting the lines like Rocky Horror Picture Show or something, but just saying every line with the characters and laughing and applauding and whooping it up and that sort of thing. That to me is fandom. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's this it's this love for your thing that you celebrate and you share with others. But there's this other side thing where you almost, you know, fandom used to also be a thing where everybody was accepted. You know, that was sort of the, the not a cliche, but that was the thing. Like everyone going to Star Trek conventions or whatever conventions, it was like, I come here and I feel accepted. I feel like I belong. But now you're reaching a point where you got to be careful what you say because you don't belong. If you don't agree with 
certain people in their views of fandom or whatever that fandom is. And suddenly you're yeah. ostracized just like you would be in the real world. You know what I mean? So within fandom, it's become the same thing. It's like, you don't agree with us. You're an out, you know, an outcast. You don't belong here. Is that, is that really a kind of a, just an online thing? Like if you were a, a fan, say of the Superman movies from the seventies and eighties, and you collected the merchandise and you mm-hmm. rented the, or bought the, you know, like the, the new 4k steel book or whatever. Do you think that those kind of fans are aware of kind of what's going on on Twitter and stuff? Or is it just this vocal poisonous minority that makes it seem like all fandom is like that when really most people have jobs and lives and they're just not engaging in that kind of crap compared to this vocal minority who kind of just breed this hate and disdain? Yeah, I mean, look, it's definitely an online thing. There's definitely a social media thing. There's no question. But unfortunately, that's the greatest exposure people get to fandom is online yeah. really look i you know i've gone to comic san diego comic-con many times but you know up until a couple of years ago i was like i was going every year for like 20 years right the one thing that always amazed me is that at comic-con you'd have something like one hundred and thirty thousand people and maybe there'd be one incident the entire time no fighting no screaming no no shoving and you could shove very easily because it's so crazy there it's so crowded there right but they don't. And that, to me, does nail the positive side of fandom. But I think the internet has become sort of where everybody goes. Well, I can't go to Comic-Con. I'm going to go on the internet. I'm going to bitch about the things I want to bitch about. And yeah. I don't know. It, to me, that's gotten very dark and nasty. And it's just not fun. You know, fandom's supposed to be and to, fun. To, to, to tie it into the book a bit, Ed, can you talk about, like, is there very different opinions about certain things in certain chapters, whether it's movies or comics or, or different aspects of Superman history? Well, I mean, what, what, what one thing that stood out for me is the George Reeves section, which is about, this book is like a bunch of mini books in one, you know what I mean? Like the, each, like some of these shows and movies get like 25,000 words or 30,000 words worth of coverage. Wow. And, you know, and you get Smallville like that, Superman, the Adventures of Superman, rather Christopher Reeve, all these things. What I find is like most on the George Reeves side of things, people are fans because it's George Reeves, not necessarily because it's Superman. And mm. I found that very interesting that they their their passion for the character is driven almost entirely by the fact that George Reeves played him. You okay. know, and you do find that with Christopher Reeve as well, but not as much. I find it's much more just very this is the point of view of many of those people. They just identified with George Reeves so much. But the mm-hmm. the thing I found in writing the book and speaking to, and I think it's over 200 people in it, nobody denigrated Superman. I mean, all those people, they may say, oh, you know, this movie sucked or this show wasn't very good or whatever it is. But that aside, there's just such a love they all had for Superman. And it yeah. was like, it was wonderful, and I didn't want a, a situation where I was going into a wind tunnel and I just hearing, oh, I like Superman, so I'm going to hear that you like Superman back. It wasn't that. I mean, there are some dividing opinions in there, but overall, it's a real passion for this character and what he represents and what he stands for. And this is in all the incarnations, mostly. Like I say, there are certain exceptions. But it's just the fact that, and this is the thing that amazes me, this character has been in production Every decade since he started almost. I mean, he started in the 30s, but by 1940, he was already in radio. And from then on to where we are now, right? We're getting ready for 2025. And uh, 
the next movie. It's like, it just doesn't stop. And that is astounding to me. And the love for it all is, is so impressive. It's something we've really experienced ourselves once we started the podcast, not only speaking to people like, you know, Jim DeMatteis and Mark Wade and yourself and, you know, various others, when you can really see and hear the love and passion they have for the character, but then also from listeners and fans of the podcast itself who send us emails or send us voice notes or whatever, and just the optimism and the you can you can almost feel the warmth and the love of the character coming through the screen from from whatever they've written um and it's something that has really floored me over the last two years i have to say yeah it's it's been it was this book was a delight to write because you know when you're sitting there and i you know i always joke around saying it's like oh let's gather a couple hundred of your friends in a room and have a sub conversation about a subject that's what these oral histories are but to have that many conversations not go into them thinking oh god here comes another conversation about superman what are we going to talk about there was never was never <laughs> a lack of subject to talk about that was the that was it was it was great it really was wonderful i just want to get back to something you said earlier ed you said at the beginning of the of the episode that this is the book uh, out of all your books this is the one that you're most excited about you know coming out and that you're why is that because I you've written it, some great books um i just want to I say your star trek books that. and everything um but uh just what why <laughs> what is it about this book in particular i think it's I think it's just the personal passion I have for this character that he does mean so much to me. Yeah. Um, you know, by the time I'm done doing podcast interviews, everyone's going to say they're sick to death of this story because I keep telling the story, but, and it's in, even in the introduction of the book. But the moment that nailed it for me for this character is, you know, I always wear Superman t shirts, not at the moment, but, but I usually am. And my son and I were driving down the street after a snowstorm, and there was an old man with a walker and a shovel. And he had the walker in one hand, the shovel in the other. And I watched him as he shuffled with the walker and he moved the shovel to pick up a little snow. And walker, shovel, walker, shovel. Said to my son, we're going to help this guy out. And my son's like, why? You know, he's a little kid at the time. Why are we going to, you know, we have to go somewhere. But we did. And we offered. The guy was very resistant. And then he finally let us do it. So we're shoveling the walk. He's leaning on his walker. And as he's leaning on his walker, he goes, thanks so much, fellows. My neighbor was sick, so I came over here to shovel his driveway. Here's a guy with a walker shoveling somebody else's driveway because he's sick. So when I get back in the car, I look at my son. I had the S on with the shirt, not saying it mean, you know, it's superpowers or anything, but I would said to him, it means something. Yeah. It stands for something. You do what you can to help others when you can. And I hope that resonated with all my boys. I hope. Um, but that's for me, that's it. It's like, I don't know. I just, like I said, I've always loved the character. It, it means a lot to me. What he represents means a lot. And because I do have the passion and spoke to so many people who shared that passion, it just brought it all to life, you know, to me in a way that I didn't think it would, even far beyond my own expectations. I mean, this book is 333,000 words long. I could have kept going. I had no time, and certainly the publisher didn't want it to be as big as it is. <laughs> and it's, uh, <laughs> uh, but they won't. I was, I, I was actually going to ask you that when you when you announced or when you decided or you when you told your peers or the publishers that you know Superman was going to be your next project or your next book, was there any kind of surprise or pushback to that? Not really, but I don't tell anybody what the, what I'm doing next. I have to get there okay. They're the ones who are paying the bills, so to speak, right? Yeah, yeah. But my agent spent a long time trying to sell this book, and she couldn't. Publishers just did not want it. I went to Nacelle Books, and I pitched it, 
And in five minutes, literally, I had a deal to do it. Wow. He just, he's a fan of this stuff. He he knows my work. So he was very, you know, he wanted to work with me. And I couldn't believe it that that he just snapped up and said, yes, let's do it. So we did it. And when I handed it in, I said to them at one point, you know, this book's really long. You may want to split it into two volumes. Hmm. You know, I was suggesting the first volume end following Superman the movie. So we get Christopher Reeve in there then pick up with Superman 2 and go forward to where we are now. But they said, no, no, we like a big book. <laughs> then, then I handed it in and they were like, wow, uh, in the future, let's try to limit these books to like four or 500 pages. <laughs> so, um, yeah. well, why, do, why do you think the other publishers were kind of hesitant about it? Was it just because of the popularity the of the character? In, I don't think they saw the commercial value in the character. I, I just really, mm. it's the same cliche, right? Like, I was told by people, well, nobody really cares about Superman anymore. They care about Spider-Man. They care about Batman, you know? They don't care about Superman. And yet, I'm seeing Henry Cavill as Superman on the big screen. I'm seeing Tyler as Superman on the small screen. I'm hearing about my adventures of Superman cartoon with Superman cartoon. He's everywhere. What are you talking about? <laughs> nobody yeah. cares. I go to Superman celebration they, they once in a while. There's like 20,000 people show up there. There, there was some statistic. It's, it's probably a few years ago now, but it, it was some statistic that Spider-Man is the number one most profitable yeah, superhero for merchandising, like number one by a country mile. And then below that, I think it's Batman. And then below Batman is Superman. Right. And then below Superman by a significant margin is the Avengers. Now that's probably changed a little bit, but like it just goes to show it's still an enormously profitable franchise. Like, and not just in terms of, films making money but merchandise and people buying t-shirts with superman on them and all that you know it's still a huge my, deal my daughter my daughter's three years of age and she told me just today alana jean she told me today that she only likes the red and blue superheroes so superman <laughs> supergirl ah. wonder woman and spider-man so those are her i'm top with four. you that's good that's with her that's <laughs> nice. that's that's excellent those uh let's just but you know but that's see that's what's wrong with the mentality of of Hollywood in some ways is Man of Steel grossed 678 million dollars I believe. Yeah. How is that a failure? Mm. But even How Superman could... Returns was deemed a failure and it did better than Batman Begins as far as I, I am I right there Rob? No, I think it did, didn't do as well as Batman Begins, but it was saddled with the cost of all those previous startups. Mm. So right. it didn't yeah. wasn't very profitable because it had been saddled with all there's no reason all those other startups. I, I, I think right? that the, the ticket sales were marginally more, but the profits were considerably right. less because it was saddled with all the development costs. Right. And I was going to ask you, the, the format of the book is such that it's um, we're hearing all these different voices and it almost reads nearly like a script of voices. And I, I, I'm a TV producer. So when I was reading it, I was going, this would be great as a documentary. Yeah. Did you ever envision it like that? Would you like to do it like that? Or uh, I think they sell it someday. May want to. They haven't said that to me, but they uh, they're all about documentaries. Uh, they've done the toys that made us, ah. the movies that made us, uh, uh, icons, I was, Star Wars. I mean, well, I will I will send you my resume. <laughs> Ed. I was I was just about to say I'm I'm kind of in Batman and Bill the Mark Nobleman documentary. That's a great um, one too, because yeah. he he puts up a tweet that I sent him to congratulate him in it. So I'd be more than happy to uh, to provide my services for the documentary. Oh, there you go. Superman. So I don't know. I hope they do. I hope they really do decide. There are enough people alive still to talk about it, you know, from the past. Not not obviously early on, but enough people. And there's certainly obviously from the book. There are hundreds of people that you could talk to. So uh, I hope they make a documentary out of it someday. But uh, we'll see. I don't know. 
And do you have any favorite chapters in the book, Ed, or anything kind of favorite um, sections or anything like that that you kind of are fond of more than others or anything? I mean, there's a the section, just because I was surprised I was able to pull it off, really, was uh, I think it's called the further the many TV adventures of Superman. And it was one chapter that had to go in chronological order and tell the story of Ruby Spears, uh, uh, Superboy, Lois and Clark, Superman, the animated series and Smallville. It's just a huge chapter that's that's <laughs> shifting, segueing from one show to the next show to the next show. And in a lot of ways, I hadn't thought about this before, but it really does epitomize the history of Superman in, the, in that there were five or six versions right there in that one chapter. It's just crazy. So that chapter really does stand out for me uh, that way, you know. Can you tell some, the listeners kind of some of the names, some of the, the people that will feature in the book? Like, is Christopher Reeve in it? You know, there's certain interviews. I know there's interviews with Marlon Brando. Um, just to kind of kind of go to some of the, like, did you have a, a favorite interview out of all those interviews that you've done over the last 35, 40 oh, years? Oh, God, it, who knows? One uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, one of my favorite moments is, is uh, Richard Donner. I was supposed to interview him for Lethal Weapon in 87. And I was supposed wow. to go into the city and interview him. I love it. I, I'm a hugely, I love with Lethal Weapon. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're great. And I couldn't go in. I had a fever. I couldn't, I got really sick. So I couldn't go in. So I called the publicist. I'm so sorry. I can't come in. The morning of the interview and around the time of the interview, my phone rings in my little apartment I had at the time. And it's somebody saying, This is Dr. Donner calling. Is this Ed Gross? Yes, it is. There's no reason we can't talk just because you're there and I'm here. Let's talk. So <laughs> I had this great conversation with Richard Donner, and it was the first of many. And the man eventually opened his floodgates to me in the sense of he gave me scripts and storyboards and, and all kinds of stuff related to Superman, put me in touch with people. I mean, so Richard Donner really holds such a warm spot in my heart uh, from all the, from the interviews I've done. Uh, over the years, I got to speak to his wife for the book, which was nice to get her perspective. That was kind of cool. Um, I mean, she's a producer in her own right, but you know, um, yeah. So yeah, there's just, I mean, there's so many, I just love doing interviews anyway. That's sort of my passion. If I, I always say that if I could just do interviews and not have to write them up, I'd be happy, you know, cause I just love the <laughs> or process. Edit them. <laughs> huh? was that? Or edit them. Or edit them. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, so I just love the process of doing it. Uh, I will say I was thrilled that the final interview for I got for the book was Brandon Routh, and Brandon agreed to write the forward to the book. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, that um, was that was very cool. The forward is is beautifully written. How how did that come yeah, about? Really and lovely. do you have Brandon's phone number? Even if I did, I wouldn't give it to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I go to his people, his people go to him, he don't, they come back to me, and we set it up. Uh, you set up a Zoom call, you never know what the person's phone number is, right? Um, it came about really just because I'd interviewed Brandon another number of times over the years, uh, from Superman Returns, then for the 10th anniversary, I spoke to him, then on Legends of Tomorrow, um, uh, with Dylan Dog, I got to 10 minutes with him alone, so we got to talk about it, and then at Superman Celebration in 2018, we, we had a one-on-one -on -one interview, uh, there, I was one of the few people that got to speak to him, so he remembered me, and I just, I asked for the interview, I got it, and I, uh, I asked these people, would he do an interview or write the forward? They said he'd rather do an interview. So we did the interview, but at, towards the end of it, it went so well. I said, Brandon, I've got to ask you a question I wasn't going to ask, but I have to. Would you be willing to write the forward? Mm. He goes, let me think about it. Wow. And he came back with a yes. And he did a beautiful job on it. I mean, it's really it's beautiful. You know, to have the book book, the, the book book ended by, 
you know, Brandon Routh's forward and Mark Wade's afterward, I was pretty pleased. I mean, that was that was pretty exciting to me. Yeah. Ed, can, can we get a sense of, uh, you know, ha- having gone through all these different versions and th- th- throughout the history of Superman, what are the highlights for you? What, what are what are the, the, the movies and the shows and the comics that really stand out to you that, that really encapsulate the character for you? I mean, comic-wise, you know, all that stuff, you know, I grew up in the 60s reading it. Uh, the Silver Age stuff now is goofy, but back then I loved. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. I had any title that had Superman in it I was buying or going to the used comic shops even back then. And, and buying back issues of them. So, but the comics that really stand out to me, uh, you know, is in the 70s when they re- tried to relaunch the character with Kryptonite Nevermore. Yeah. I love that story. I loved it when I was 11 years old. That's the Neil Adams cover, isn't it? Yes, the chains. The chains yeah. Breaking the Chains with the Sandman Superman, as I call it. Uh, and he eats Kryptonite that for to lunch me in that was one. such a great highlight uh, of the character's history. I don't know why it appealed to me. I've got a comic rack here in this room and... Every issue of that arc is is there on one of the uh, in the rack. Um, so I've got that. The John Burns stuff. I really like John Burns' take on Superman. I really think yeah. he did a great job on it uh, in terms of uh, just you know providing a new evolution for the character and a, really a good retcon that didn't make you sit there throwing up. You know, and it, it had a long lasting impact. It was uh, uh, you know the stuff with Lex Luthor as a businessman and all that. I mean, that was definitely still going. So that's that's long lasting. Kingdom Come, great stuff. Superman Birthright. Mark Wade did a wonderful job with that. You yeah, yes. All Star Superman. I mean, there's so many. I'm much more fan, uh, like continuing fan of the arcs, those kind of standalone storylines, than necessarily the whole history of the character in comics. But I love it all. I mean, you know, but those are the things that really stand yeah. out. As far as movies and TV shows, George Reeves holds a special. But that's the thing; they all hold a special spot, right? George Reeves. First, first impression of Superman, loved it. Saturday mornings with the new adventures of Superman, the filmation cartoon. You yeah. know, as a kid, I was six when it debuted. I, you know, I loved that. Christopher Reeve changed, you know, rocks my world and just is like amazing as mm. Superman. You know, Lois and Clark was good. I know there's a lot of people like from another generation that just treasure <laughs> Lois and Clark. Lois and yes. Clark started off great and I felt diminished as it went on. I just, I didn't feel That's it, fair. It, it held up. Smallville. Overall, great. Hate the finale. You get me an hour yeah. on that talking about how much I hate that. Yep. <laughs> uh, but, but so, and that's the thing. Even Henry Cavill, it's like I was saying earlier. There's not one that I love. I mean, I love Christopher Reeve the most, but there's not one that I could sit there and go, oh, I hate this. I really like this, whatever. I'll, where he flies, I fly. You know, he's, and I said that uh-huh. earlier, but it's, it's really how I feel about it. I just, I, when Super Pets had the trailer on, and they played the John Williams theme. Oh, I know. You know, Christmas with a big smile on my face. You know, my head snaps yeah. up. And you know, in the movies where they look and they go, Superman. It was like, <laughs> I hear the John Williams theme. <laughs> just turns and it snaps towards it. So it's just such a love for the character. It's just. Uh... I couldn't believe how good that was. That was that was good fun. I mean, it wasn't great, but it was pretty good. <laughs> oh, it was fun. It was a fun movie. It really was. Uh, and I think that James Gunn should absolutely use the John Williams theme. I think Henry Cavill's appearance at the ending of Black Adam to the John Williams theme proves the theme embodies Superman. Please use it. It's like the James Bond yeah. theme. Absolutely. You know, 
There's no um, reason to change and it. And on that, and on that. So what do you think of that segue, Ed, Rob? <laughs> oh, nice, nice. Probably done. Um, Ed, I'm a huge James Bond fan. Uh, you've also written an oral history of James Bond. Our listeners probably don't want to listen to quite as much uh, discussion of James Bond. Well, they're going to. They're going to now, man. They don't have a choice. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Where, where, where are you at with James Bond in a nutshell? Oh, I mean, the book is Nobody Does It Better, and except maybe Superman. Nobody does do it better. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love James Bond. Again, that's a thing I discovered as you know, my wife and I have this debate. I always say I was formed in the 60s, and she says that's impossible. You were like zero through 10 in the 60s. You, you, know, you turned 10 onwards in the 70s. But I, you know, in the 60s, I fell in love with James Bond. I fell in love with Superman. I fell in love with Dark Shadows. I fell in love with Planet of the Apes, the Beatles. All the things that I still love to this day, I am therefore a child of the 60s. That being said, uh, my first Bond was Thunderball. I remember the traction machine. Yes. That was the first scene I remember of it. And uh, Nice to have met you, Mr. Bond. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And by the end of the 60s, I had seen, of course, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice on Majesty's Secret Service. And then in 71, they did a triple feature of Dr. No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger in Brooklyn. I don't know where Ooh. else, but so for me, that was like discovering whole new adventures, right? Because I'd never seen them before. I have been with Bond through every actor, through every movie. And I'm of the opinion when they blow it on one of the movies or a couple of the movies, when it's over, I always go, eh, we'll get it right next time. And I walk out like not in a depressed mood, but just thinking, eh, okay, it wasn't great, but we'll get back to it. And I will say, with uh, No Time to Die, and this will be a spoiler, I'm sorry to say. Uh, when Bond dies at the end, I, <gasps> what? what? Bond dies? Are you kidding? <laughs> now, I always think the, the, the great book ending of Bond is the gun barrel at the beginning to James Bond will return at the end. Yes. Mm. I must say, I yelled out again. Uh, it's the second time I yelled out at <laughs> when James Bond return came up. I actually yelled out, Oh, you shoved the missile up his ass. How are you going to bring him back? <laughs> so anyway, I was pretty annoyed about that. It's but the multiverse, that, the multiverse, exactly. Multiverse. But anyway, that's a long answer. You could cut out whatever you'd like. Uh, but I love mm -hmm. James Bond and, and it is one, like when they say they don't know what they're doing next and they haven't got an actor and they haven't got a script. I'm like, I've only got so many bond movies left in me. Will you please get moving yeah. and get these <laughs> things out? You know, somebody said to Michael Wilson once, uh, when is it coming out? He said, we're not a factory, you know? Well, guess what? You used to be, you used to turn them out every two yeah. years in the beginning. They were every year. Uh, yeah. so anyway, so I don't know if that sums up how much I love James I, Bond, but there you go. It's I mentioned to Alan in our last episode, I really want to do an episode where we examine the, uh, the links between the Superman franchise and the James Bond franchise and the Batman franchise. Cause they all kind of feed into each other with, you know, Guy Hamilton was supposed yeah. to direct Superman, the movie and Tom Mankiewicz, obviously. And then, you know, Tom Mankiewicz then wrote a script for Batman and they were trying to get all these. Right. James Bond directors for Batman and and then they were all filmed in Pinewood which is yeah. where James Bond, Superman was filmed the 007 stage loads of interesting connections I'd love to just explore you know it's a today. really interesting connection behind the scenes in a sense is Jerry Siegel's ongoing battle with DC and mm -hmm. how he couldn't let it go and he was angry and he was just bitter about the situation which is talked in, really in depth in the book uh, but he just was so he had a sue. He was driven to sue. He was driven to try. And I get it. I mean, I understand why. In James Bond, Kevin McClory had the rights to Thunderball from a lawsuit with yeah. Ian Fleming. He made a deal with Broccoli and Saltzman to make Thunderball to produce it. And his deal was in 10 years, he'd get the rights back. Hmm. And he did. And he ultimately made Never Say Never Again. 
But here's a guy who insisted that he owned James Bond, that it should be his. And he spent his entire life in courtrooms, battling uh, Broccoli, you know, Eon Productions, trying to get those rights. I don't know if others would see that as a similar, uh, you know, thing, but I, I noticed that parallel track. Neither one of them could get on with their lives in a sense because they felt they were ripped off and they had to fight back all they could to their dying days. I feel like Siegel had a little bit more legitimacy to his argument than Kevin McClory, though. That, 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 that's just me. That There is an amazing book about that. Absolutely. Though. No, I, I agree. I do agree with that. Um, I'm just saying it's kind of sad when but, your life goes in that direction. When, you know, you yeah, just yeah. got that, whether justifiable or not, that anger or bitterness. There reaches a point, though, you have to kind of try to move on. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And that you can't mm. constantly spend your life fighting it because then that's all your life is about is fighting these battles. Yeah. So, well, know, that, and that'll be, that'll be very interesting. And you, that's covered in depth in the book, um, Ed, is it? Well, the Siegel and Schuster stuff with DC, uh, it definitely is because that was a rabbit hole I fell down early on and I could not get myself out of because there were so many points of view on that, you know, because in the sense of morally, DC absolutely owed Siegel and Schuster and should have done something about it. There's no question about that. And they ultimately did, even if it was out of embarrassment uh, that they did. But Siegel and Schuster made a lot of money in that 10 years. They were to get, you know, working on Superman. They made, you know, if you adjust it for inflation, the equivalent of $6.7 million. You know? Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, in the equivalent of, and that's that's a, that's nothing compared to what DC made, but that's not the point. Yeah. They sold the rights, whether good, bad, or whatever. They sold the rights. They were pretty decently compensated for those 10 years till they sued the company and then they lost everything. It's the same thing that Sylvester Stallone is doing right now with Rocky. Yeah, that's right. And Jim. he's, you know, he's insisting the producers are ripping him off somehow. But the truth of the matter is, in 1976, he was a struggling actor, or 75. He sells the script and therefore the rights to Rocky Balboa, to United Artists, or to Irving Winkler and, and Robert Chardoff. And the difference is, he worked on it for all those years. He made tens of millions of dollars doing it. But now he's mad that he doesn't own a piece yeah. of the character, and it's like there's there's a, there's a real ugliness to his his kind of attacks on the producers. Oh, as they're well, really yeah. bad. But what's different about that than the cast of Gilligan's Island signed in you know a deal for five mm. reruns, and the residuals end, and the thing is run millions of times, or the original yeah. Star Trek. Yeah, those guys were in poverty in the seventies. A lot of them. You know, but can I ask Ed as well? Is is there any connection between the recent and this is probably getting a bit too detailed now? The recent court case involving the Seagulls and the Superman movie rights that they have to make a Superman movie every certain amount of time, or Warner Brothers' rights to the movie license will last. I've never or am I totally, honestly, I've never heard that. The only that might have been some message board. Spider Man has saw. that. If Sony doesn't make know, a Spider Man yeah, movie, they lose their rights. But no, DC Warner Brothers owns. Uh, you know, uh, own Superman. I mean, until it goes public. But th- there's a special, there's a special arrangement with the Siegel family. Now, yeah, they worked it? out some sort of deal, and I'm not exactly sure what that deal is. But it does say Superman created. Used to just say Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster started with Superman the movie. That was the credit. And then in the 2000s, there was all these lawsuits involving the lawyer Mark Tomaroff, where he's trying to get the rights himself to make a movie, uh, and that really kind of messed everything up. Um, but yeah, so they, I'm not exactly sure what the, you know, by special arrangement stems from, 
So they do have to put that. But now I noticed on, uh, I guess it was Superman and Lois, where it says created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, based on the character from DC Comics. Hmm. That's what it Ooh. says now. That's what it said there. So uh, something like that. So uh, that was I'm different. Getting- yeah. Can I ask you both, because I'm not sure about this. I, mm-hmm. I, I recently saw on uh, Netflix or some streaming service that they have made, this is going to sound really left to field here, but they'd, they'd made a Winnie the Pooh horror film. Yeah, they have. Yeah. Because the, the rights had lapsed. What happens to the Superman rights in 2038? Does something like... Do, well, it's do they tough. become public? Or? Well, what it is, is like Winnie the Pooh, you can't put Winnie the Pooh in a red shirt. He's got to be walking around like a stuffed bear. Uh, and otherwise you're violating Disney's copyright or trademark on, on Winnie the Pooh. Superman is going to be tough even when it goes into public domain. What goes into the public domain is like Action Comics number one. So okay. you could just say, okay, it's got Superman, great. But you can't advertise the name Superman because it's trademarked. You can't use the S because it's trademarked. It's the same way that Edgar Rice Burroughs' estate is a lot, you know, is basically clamming, you know, slamming down on anybody who tries to do Tarzan or John Carter unlicensed, even though both those characters are in the public domain. Hmm. But there are so many restrictions on what you can do. Who wants to make a Tarzan movie and you have to call it Lord of the Jungle or, yeah. you know, or, or something like that. And Are we going to be inundated with kind of Superman ripoffs? They wouldn't have access to enough and Warner Brothers has access to so much material from 85 years that they could point at anything and say, you're ripping uh, off this. Well, you know, what's you in that first 13 to. pages of action comics? I mean, yeah. not a lot. Um, I mean, you know what I mean? You can get, you could get his origin in there, I guess. And, but there are so many things that if they came after action, number one, I, I, I may be off. There may be a couple of issues, but I'm going to go with action. Number one, you know, like if Jarrell and Laura aren't named in action, number one, you can't use them. Yeah. If Jonathan and Martha Kent aren't named, which they're not in in action number one, you can't use them. So there's just so little that you can actually use. It'll be interesting to see. Plus, I interrupted myself, but Warner Brothers, see how litigious they are about it. You know what I mean? Like, and I assume they're going to be extremely litigious about it. Hmm. You know, they're going to watch for every Captain Marvel, supposedly Shazam, Captain Marvel is supposedly in the public domain because those first issues weren't copyrighted properly. Yeah. You know, so Captain Marvel, Freddie, uh, you know, Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Mary Marvel, all those characters theoretically are public domain. But you can't, you know, you got to be careful. I think the lightning bolt is is trademarked. The name is trademarked. So, you know, how do you, what do you do? I mean, what's left for you yeah. to play with there, you know? So that's what I think Superman's going to run into and Batman when that time comes. Year later. Uh, b- before we finish up, Ed, I'd be remiss not to ask you a little bit about Star Trek. You've written the uh, 50-year mission, and the two volumes of the 50-year mission. You're a massive Star Trek fan. It's probably my second favorite franchise after after The Man of Steel, after Superman. Um, are you watching Star Trek Picard at the moment, season three? Are you invested? Do you love it? Do you hate it? For the record, I'm a Lost in Space fan. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I, I really have to say, after really despising seasons one and two of Picard, Yes. I've really enjoyed season three a lot. Uh, I haven't watched the finale yet. Uh, I don't like the fact that the plot element, a plot element of episode nine was like really a ripoff of Battlestar Galactica uh, plot wise. And I don't want to say yeah. it for people who haven't you know, seen it, but the chemistry has been great. The repartee, one of the things I always found that next gen lacked in a lot of ways was the repartee between the characters like Kirk, Spock and McCoy always had. And even in Generations, yes. Scotty, Chekhov, and Kirk have that 
the rest of them don't. They just don't have that playfulness. There, that was here in this. This was, this felt like old friends coming together again, and you know, yeah, it was all shipboard. I mean, it's very, very contained show, so you can see they were keeping the budget relatively controlled. Yeah, but Terry Metalis, man, why this guy is not being given another show to do, I don't understand. I just yeah. here's a guy who gets it. You know, he just gets what Star Trek is about, gets the characters. A lot of the other Star Treks, it's kind of what I was saying about Superman before. They're not really Star Trek in a lot of ways. They're they're this sort of people dropping the F-bomb and 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 again, not a prude, just you know where it belongs and where it doesn't belong, right? Yeah. Uh and not holding again with the corruption of Starfleet and the darkness. And so much of the new Trek has been that. <laughs> this to me captures and Strange New Worlds has to a certain degree too, I think. Uh, mm, except for a couple really of the episodes, like but Jones. overall, I think it's captured some of the, uh, a little bit of the magic of the old Star Trek. Yeah. Card is really, if this is the goodbye to these characters, it's a hell of a send off. And I'm so glad we got the opportunity to, to have it, uh, to view it rather than letting nemesis be sort of the memory of yeah where they said goodbye. This because they didn't, they, they, they never really got their, their undiscovered country moment, you know, no. I, I don't think with, with Nemesis, whether they, I, I believe they had planned to make another film after that. And look, when Picard was announced, I was very excited, but like you, season one and two, I thought were very poor. And look, I, I, there are issues I would have with season three. And I know people have raised them, you know, how the first few episodes are basically a kind of a copy and paste of Wrath of Khan and things like that. <laughs> but uh, Wrath of Khan. How it, I haven't watched the rest of season three because I noped out after they went into the nebula. I was like, are we just are we just doing Rat the Can again, guys? We've done it four no, times. No, they're not though. They're not. They don't. You know, I have to say they move away from that, and it's uh, yeah. Okay, I I do want to check it out. Yeah, yeah. No, a hundred percent. A lot of member berries, but yeah, I um I have to say, like you said, it. If if this is the swan song to the next generation, um, I'm really really glad we got it, and it's 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 airing tonight. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Um, oh, I started watching it before we spoke. I have to go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Rob, do you want to ask anything else before we go? No, uh, no, it's it's been a lovely chatting to you, Ed. I, I know I could talk to you about James Bond all night, but I won't. Not this Let's time. Let's do a special. Um, but anyway. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But no, we're, we're both really, really excited to read this book in its, uh, in its full form. And we heartily encourage everyone to check it out. Where, where, can, where can people pick up Voices from Krypton, um, Ed? Voices from Krypton is available. I mean, over you know where you guys are, I'm not so sure where they can get it. Although, if you can order from Amazon, that it's on pre-order right now. The book is being published June sixth, and uh, it's available now for pre-order. And it's, um, I think, Superman fan. Look, I'm I'm ready for people to sit there and go. He didn't cover this. He didn't cover that. He didn't cover this. Okay, <laughs> I didn't. But look at what I did cover, and I think people will be happy that all the major things are covered, and it's not just me recapping the history it's people talking about the history you yeah. know and explaining how it evolved and their feelings about it and all so i hope it's a little bit different than a lot of the other superman books that have been I, I have to say i never thought i'd see myself credited between marlon brando and tim burton so i'm very pleased <laughs> <laughs> well i was very pleased to have you guys involved with it i, I love presenting the uh, presenting the perspectives of not just the people who have made these things but the people who have followed them have critical mm. opinions of them. And I don't mean critical in a necessarily a bad way, but both ways, you know, positive or negative. And just, I think it's important to get those different perspectives in these oral histories, not just the people who are saying, well, I made this movie and it was great, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Excellent. Rob, do you want to give out the socials? Uh, yes, you can follow us on Facebook at All Star Super Fan and uh, Instagram as well. You can follow us on Twitter at All Star Super Pod. Uh, stay tuned for a special edition of the Metropolis Mailbag after this, where we read out some fan correspondence. And don't forget to send us in your own thoughts and feelings on everything we've discussed with Ed tonight, uh, from Star Trek to James Bond, or maybe even a couple of things about Superman. Uh, so, so yeah, Ed Gross, everybody, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, so well, and that was a very nice chat with Ed, uh, all about his book. What do you think? Yeah, well, I've I've known Ed for a little over a year now. Um, he interviewed me over Zoom for the Voices from Krypton book, which is something that I'm immensely proud of being a part of. I know you are too. And yeah, it's uh, I'm really looking forward to reading it. We were um, privileged to get a little bit of a of a a, a taste for it. With he sent us about mm. sixty thousand words of it, and we read through that, including the forward by Brandon. Yeah, a few weeks ago, and yeah, I'm I, I can't wait to, to to read through the whole thing. It won't be a, a one day sit down and you're done <laughs> for a cup of coffee kind of a job. It's 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 basically a bible of Superman. Um, but you you can see his passion, his passion for the character, his love for the character, his appreciation for the character, um, just shines through. And it really is a project. And he said that to me from the start. You know, he's he's a huge fan of Star Trek. He's a, he's a huge fan of James Bond, Battlestar Galactica. I think he may even have done a Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, yeah, I think history he did. As well. um, I never asked him about that, but uh, he, he, he said it from the start that this has really been a passion project for years. And he was kind of worried that maybe publishers wouldn't respond well to it for whatever reason. And he is he's delighted to have it out. And I really hope that our listeners, as well as everybody else in the Superman fan community, really support Ed. And show publishers, you know, that books like this, um, you know, can make money and can do well. And hopefully we'll get more stuff down the more stuff down the road. But yeah, I can't wait to get pick it up. And you know what, as well, you mentioned it. It's it's not really a like a read it all in one go type thing. But I think it will be a great reference guide, especially yes. for us. Like uh, there's a whole chapter I was reading there in one of the excerpts about the Broadway musical. And there's yeah. loads of information on that and loads of different people talking about it. And the two writers, David and Leslie Newman, who also went on to write the the movies then, Superman 1 through 3, uh, like they're interviewed in it and they talk about how they approached it differently from the movies. And one thing I never knew is it wasn't a success. I, I just assumed yeah. it, all, it was this big hit on Broadway. It wasn't. People didn't go to see it. They thought it was for kids, but it was actually aimed at adults. There's all this like really, really interesting stuff that, you know, when we're doing episodes on this in the future, I'll probably be citing the quotes in that book, which is really, really, you know, useful to have. So, so well there's a lot of excitement. Ed. There's a lot of excitement for things at the moment. Um, I like I know for for a fact for the, the, at the week of recording this, the Steelbook, uh, Superman, uh, the the five disc Steelbook, four K release is is dropping, and people are are receiving them. Uh, like I'm really not too excited about that at all. I think that people should really be excited about something like this that really is an in-depth study of the character over 85 years and really will give you a good feeling for who Superman is 
and who the people who have created him, not just Jerry and Joe, but the people who've kind of carried his mantle over the last 85 years, who they are and what their thoughts and opinions are. I find it much more fascinating than seeing the same um, content again, the same content again, <laughs> in slightly just, nicer you know, colors, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know I, I'm not trying to, to degrade anybody who's excited about that. Look, it's a beautiful box set and stuff, but I really hope that say something like that gets uh, something like voices from Krypton gets the same level of support as something like that. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it going back to the good old days of DVD when, you know, you had all these special features, this is literally at, at 330 pages or however long it is of, of yeah. special features, people talking about, this stuff, you know, which we, we don't really no get super pop of. though. I'm I'm disappointed about no, the lack of he, super no, he pop. said he said super pop gets a mention. He just didn't I say it. I think he said that super pop's the only one who doesn't get a mention. <laughs> well, Alan, we can write a book about super pop someday if we can ever. I don't think it's is it on any of the DVDs, Super Pop? I've never seen it. I think it is. Yeah, I think there's at least I've I've definitely seen God, and maybe this is a false memory. I'm all, I, I I feel like saying I, I've seen an episode on one of the Christopher Reeve, the original box sets, maybe the DVDs. Yeah, um, you're right. There is only the episode. There's only the one. Like, they yeah. one, a pilot. But yeah, I don't want to no, say I... I've definitely seen the full episode because maybe it's just clips and I, I'm misremembering it, but I'm yeah. almost sure that there is an episode or the episode is included on one of those DVDs. It's the same box set that I first saw Superman and the Mole Men on. That was included yeah, in that as was, well. That was on one of those as well. Don't strange. ask me which one. Yeah, very um, strange. Yeah, well, well, we'll have to talk about Bark Bent another day. Um, but right now, we, we wanted to turn our attention to the Metropolis mailbag. We got a lovely letter from fan of the show, TJ McDonnell, who um, is very nice to us on the Facebook page, especially. He often comments and, and likes the posts we put out, and um, he, he's always very supportive. And he sent us a lovely message that I'm going to read here. Um, I wanted to share this story with you guys because I really enjoy your podcast and respect your love for Superman and what he stands for. In early December of 2005, a very dear friend reached out to me and let me know that Katie Johnson, the daughter of the founder of the 501st Stormtrooper cosplay group, Albin Johnson, was a huge Superman fan. She was going through cancer treatment for a brain tumor. And my friend asked if I could send an autographed picture as Superman to Katie for Christmas. I immediately went to work. My friends and I made the following. I printed out a copy in a comic book format with front and rear covers. I got everyone involved to sign a Christmas card. Then some of us signed it again as members of the Daily Planet staff. Love that. I FedExed both the comic and the card to Albin. Katie got it in her stocking Christmas morning. I'm told she fell asleep later that day with it. And he then uh, sent us the whole comic, which um, we're going to try and post in some way, maybe on the uh, on the Instagram page. And yeah. uh, he he sort of he he said at the at the end of the letter, we were young, and I had a crash course in Photoshop for this. Be gentle. It looks amazing. It so looks it looks really good. When when I read the letter, I was like, oh, this will probably be very kind of date. He he, they did an amazing job. So like um, every every single individual panel is a photograph that they had to go out and take, right? So yeah. it's it's literally it's like a storyboard for a movie, um, and you know like some of the shots are are pretty cinematic and, and pretty well thought out, and there's loads of shots of kind of Superman flying that they must have had to figure out how to do, and it, it tells this whole like lovely kind of Christmas time story, um, and you know shots of Superman saving the day and. Uh, the, the, there's a Christmas tree falling over there, and it's I, I I can't read the whole thing out loud on the show, but um we are going to put it out on the on the socials. But just what a lovely thing to do! What a, what a great citizen, you know? 
Yeah, I'm just I'm going through it again here, and it really is nice. I I presume TJ himself played Superman in the comic book. Played yes, Clark yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's and TJ is a is kind of a prolific uh, cosplayer, and if he looks thought, great, yeah, no, it's he looks kind of really, a, really good. It's not too dissimilar from the Dean Cain costume, or am yeah, I wrong? I was kind of getting a Superboy season. Superboy, four. yeah, I suppose. Superboy season Superboy. four vibes. Uh, he's got that perfect kind of comic book s. He's got that lovely black hair, and yeah, yeah you you're can, right. You can see a bit of Lois and Clark in there as well, though, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, and uh, again, like we just spoke to Ed about fandoms and the tox, you know, the toxicity of fandoms, and this is really fandom at its best, isn't it? Yes, when, when you really break it down, this is what Superman fandom should be about, and those who really understand the character and love the character, I mean, th- this is exactly what it's all about. And uh, I just wanted, yeah, I just wanted to say well done to, to TJ and and everybody who was involved in that. We'll have to get him to make the all-star superfan comic book, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, like the, the great thing, the best thing you can be as a fan is when you pay it forward, when you do something yeah. nice for someone else with, with the thing you love, as opposed to just constantly consuming things for yourself. It's, you know, he set out and did this whole project out of the goodness of his heart and out of his love for Superman and his want to give this little girl who uh you know wasn't 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 doing so and he didn't even send this in for us to bring it up in the podcast or talk about it on the podcast it was just kind of here's something i did once and yeah you might like it it. yeah yeah Yeah. so so Um, way to go tj um you share the namesake with clark's uh college roommate from season one of superboy as well so uh so that's another thing i like about <laughs> what a good pull i, I wonder did poco sign, sign the card uh. well, he wasn't a daily, he was a daily planet staff member um he was a houseboy or something wasn't he per- perry white's uh illegal uh maid or a servant whatever you want to call it but and before i forget uh we got another lovely letter from a friend of the show josh green we got this a while ago i forgot to bring it up and i just wanted to uh, point this out as well um because it relates directly to our show. Rob and Alan, I wanted to share a YouTube video that I made that I thought you two might get a kick out of. I make Mystery Science Theater 3000 type videos, but with a Grogu stuffy. And one of my videos, arguably my funniest, is a direct result of your show with Grogu watching Panic in the Sky, the George Reeves episode. Isn't that our least, isn't that our least viewed episode? It's our it's it's one of our least uh, downloaded episodes, but it's Dick's one of my meets. favorites. Uh, D- Dick's, <laughs> Dick's meets and Alan losing his mind. I never watched this episode before listening to your show, and boy, my Grogu character really lays into that episode, especially <laughs> about Alan's favorite glasses scene. Oh my god! Let me know what you two think, and thank you for the inspiration that allowed me to make my funniest video. Well, Josh, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to post that on the probably the Twitter page and the Facebook page as well for people to check yeah. it out. Uh, that is just amazing. And please, if anyone hasn't seen Panic in the Sky, go and check it out. It's a great episode, even if there's one bit in it that Alan hates. Um, and in fairness, <laughs> and I'm not that crazy episode about of our it show. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. listen to that episode of our show by all means. Yeah, that yeah. that'd be great. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah. yeah, so that was just another nice. So again, anything uh, weird or wonderful or, or lovely like that that you'd like to send us. By all means, please uh, send it on. We'd love to. Uh, we'd love to read it out on the show. Yeah, allstarsuperpod at gmail.com is the email, folks. And again, allstarsuperfan on Facebook and Instagram at allstarsuperpod on Twitter. And again, if you could leave us a, a review, especially an Apple review, it really means a lot and it helps get the, the word of the podcast out there. Get helps get us more exposure. So we'd really appreciate that too. Awesome. Uh, anything else from you tonight, Alan? 
No, I am literally staying up. It is at the t- at this exact time. It is half nine, and I am waiting up till after midnight to see if the Picard season final uh, finale drops. And I have popcorn, and I have Maltesers, and I have Coke Zero, and I'm going to sit here and I am going to watch, uh, or I'm going to say goodbye to my favorite Star Trek, uh, the Star Trek Next Generation family. You know, I'm I'm taking it that this is their last. Uh, this is their swan song, um, and. I didn't really get into it with Ed, but, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation has always meant a huge deal to me personally. It's my Star Trek. It's the one that I watched from 1970 or 1987, 1988, 1987 um, with my father. And he was a huge fan of the original series. And uh, he kind of introduced me to The Next Generation. And I remember going to see the films in the um, and obviously being kind of disappointed by the ugliness of that film and the kind of it, it wasn't a very pleasant film, I didn't think. Um, so to to finally see the crew get the recognition, um, like I said, to Ed, the uh, their undiscovered country moment. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And the reviews I'm hearing are, are, are stellar. So I can't wait to see it. So, yeah. So, look, that about does it from us. Alan, go and make it so. And uh, we'll be back very soon with more stuff, uh, more exciting episodes of All Star Superfan. Engage. (laughs) Stay safe, stay super, and take care, everybody. Until next time. Bye-bye.